Working Out Salvation History in the Book of Mormon, Politeia, with Fear and Trembling, a review of James E. Faulkner's Mosiah, a brief theological introduction by Alan Goff. Abstract The Maxwell Institute for the Study of Religion has released another book in its series, The Book of Mormon, a Brief Theological, Intro- brief theological Introductions. This book by James E. Faulkner more than ably engages five core elements of the Book of Mosiah, exploring their theological implications. Faulkner puzzles through what are confusing passages and elements. Why is the book rearranged so that it isn't in chronological order? Why might King Benjamin, what might King Benjamin mean when he refers to the nothingness of humans? And what might Abinadi mean when he declares that Christ is both the Father and the Son? The most interesting parts of the introduction to Mosiah are those chapters that sort through the discussion of politics, as both Alma 1 and Mosiah 2 sort out divine preferences in constitutional arrangements as the Nephites pass through a political revolution shifting from rule by kings to rule by judges. Faulkner asserts that no particular political structure is preferred by God. In the chapter about economic arrangements, Faulkner, as in his analysis of political constitutions, asserts that deity doesn't endorse any particular economic relationship. James Faulkner has authored another in the Maxwell Institute series, The Book of Mormon, Brief Theological Introductions. His subject, The Book of Mosiah, The examination is admirable in drawing deep exegetical insights from Mosiah, despite the study's brevity. I'll quibble with Faulkner about passages he could have engaged, disagree with some readings, and extend some interpretations when my readings correspond with Faulkner's but call for more elaboration. But make no mistake that Faulkner has done a commendable job of highlighting important theological elements of Mosiah, themes and passages readers often read over casually, without drawing out the deeper meaning present. Such short or brief introductions are in vogue for publishers. Oxford University Press has the, quote, very short introductions, end quote, series highlighting authors, countries, nuclear weapons, various philosophies, even improbable topics such as fire and teeth. The Maxwell Institute has a more academically oriented audience in mind than the, quote, for dummies, end quote, series, a book about theology for dummies would seem a confusion of audience. Quote, learning made easy, end quote, asserts the publisher, Wiley, as if learning is as easy as switching from baking cookies to doing no-bake cookies. The Pelican book in print by Penguin, attempted from 1937 to 1984 to educate the British populace on economics, science, literature, and history, usually introduced by the adjective popular, and was revived in 2014. Subjects such as parenting, Marxism, the Anthropocene, and argumentation. Cambridge University Press does short introductions to management. The MIT Press does the Essential Knowledge series with such topics as hate speech, phenomenology, contraception, and quantum entanglement. In all these book series, the word that consistently pops up in promotional material is accessible. Much more specialized publishers produce brief introductions to topics in mathematics, psychology, science, and other subject areas. Something about the contemporary Western cultural conditioning trains readers to demand brevity. 
Think of cliff notes as spark note summaries rather than the laborious but rewarding work of reading War and Peace or Heart of Darkness cover to cover. And do I understand correctly that the Quibi streaming service broadcasts complete scripted and unscripted programs lasting between 7 and 10 minutes? Even Bollywood movies have reduced their average runtime from three hours, three and a half hours, to that to match modern attention spans and generate more ticket sales in the same amount of screen runtime. Let me summarize the book first, mingling some brief regrets about elements of uh, Mosiah Faulkner didn't address, while mixing in some issues and concepts I believe call for more detailed engagement. Perhaps some publisher will commit to a Book of Mormon deep theological engagement series, which will permit Faulkner more far-reaching and sustained exploration. Introduction Faulkner's book makes no claims to comprehensiveness or definitiveness. Brevity doesn't permit such possibilities. Faulkner works well within the constraints of the book series. The introduction lays out the five themes the book develops, which happen to be five numbered chapters in the book. One, why Mosiah has the peculiar non-chronological structure it has. Two, despite discussing good and bad government and leaders, Mosiah warns against the reader's too human tendency to conflate particular forms of government, policies, or leaders with God's will. Mosiah is not a tract about good government. If anything, it is an argument against mixing religion with politics. That's a quotation from Jim Faulkner, page 9. Three, when King Benjamin asserts that his listeners should keep in mind their own nothingness, Faulkner explains what the nothingness might mean to Benjamin. Four, what might Benjamin mean when he asks, quote, are we not all beggars, end quote, with the implicit answer that we are. The point is not about our socioeconomic status, but rather to impress on the reader, listener, that the human place in the divine economy and the consequences of the remission of sins. The last numbered chapter, 5, takes up the confusing issue in Messiah 15, 1-5, which can be interpreted as a passage asserting a Trinitarian relationship in the Godhead, between the Father and Son. The discussion in this chapter is as close as the book gets to doing systematic theology. The introduction is representative of the book generally as a model of compositional clarity and simplicity in writing. I can and will lament that Faulkner doesn't address some issues or raise some questions, always recognizing that the, fall, the small physical format, 5 inches by 8 inches of the book, and the page limit, 150 pages, specified by the series editors, imposes strict limits on the concerns Faulkner could take up. An example of a topic I would like to have considered is the name of the book. The content could have led to its being called the Book of Abinadi, or the Book of Benjamin, for surely each is more prominently featured than Mosiah too is, but it is the Book of Mosiah. The Hebrew root M-S-H is the stem of the word we read in English as Messiah, often transliterated as Moshiach. Of course, Mosiah is the same, has the same MSH or YSH base. Vowels in the biblical text are post-biblical, so vowel notation in the written form of the Hebrew Bible is somewhat speculative. The Hebrew name Mosiah means Savior. The word straightforwardly means anointed, but usually with the alternate translation of, quote, to save, end quote, in the nominal form, Savior, or as, quote, the Lord saves or delivers, end quote. 
Surely the name of the book has something to do with the theological themes and the salvation history written into the narrative. A. Benjamin's people hear the word of salvation, which hearing changes their life trajectories. B. The Limhi and Alma 1 groups are saved slash delivered from bondage to the Lamanites. C. Alma 2 and the sons of Mosiah 2 are saved from sin and debauchery. And D. The reunified Nephite and Mulekite groups undergo a political revolution from leadership by kings to leadership by judges in an attempt to save the polity from the repetition of King Noah's ruinous reign. Chapter 1. Why this structure? Faulkner attempts the con- accepts the consensus view that Mosiah was the first portion of the Book of Mormon we read that Joseph Smith dictated. After Martin Harris lost the first manuscript, Smith resumed translation from the large plates of Nephi, apparently from the narrative juncture where he left off, dictated Mosiah through Moroni, then went back and filled in the earlier part by translating First Nephi through the words of Mormon from the small plates. This is known as the Mosiah First Theory, a Book of Mormon composition. The Book of Mosiah itself has some chronological problems to work out. When we read the book of Mosiah, we often don't grasp that the reading order is not the chronological order of events recounted in the book. The book of Mosiah is fragmentary, and Faulkner asserts that structure becomes theme. The Lamanite group fragments into Nephites and Lamanites. Mosiah 1 leaves the original land of inheritance to settle in Zarahemla. Zenith separates to return to the land of Nephi, which colony divides into those led by Limai and Alma 1. By the end of the book, these divisions are nullified as the remaining Nephites are reunited in Zarahemla. Similarly, Faulkner reads the text of Mosiah as itself fragmented. The events in Mosiah have been disassembled like an anagram puzzle and reassembled in a different order than the chronological timeline. The chronology would have had the following trajectory. 1. The chronological book of Mosiah would start in Mosiah 9 with Zenith leading a group to recolonize the land of Nephi and continue through the ministry and death of Abinadi and subsequent capture of the Limhi group by Lamanites. The implication here is the main group group at Zarahemla doesn't experience the Noah-Abinadi confrontation except as recounted after the fact. Two, the Amawan group flees from King Noah's army to find refuge in Helam It is soon brought into Lamanite bondage. Three, Benjamin delivers his address and transfers the kingship to Mosiah. Two, Benjamin then dies. The implication here is that the Zenith group, or their parents, were present to hear or read Benjamin's speech in Zarahemla about 75 years before Zenith recolonizes the land of Nephi. Four, Mosiah too leads Ammon and a search party to find the Zenith group. Under Limhi, the Zenith group escapes Lamanite bondage by returning to Zarahemla. 5. Alma 1's group escapes Lamanite bondage in their exodus to Zarahemla. Alma becomes high priest over all the Nephites and Mulekites at Zarahemla. 6. Younger Nephites, including Alma 2 and the sons of Mosiah 2, rebel, are converted and prepare to preach to the Lamanites. 7. Mosiah 2 translates the Jaredite record retrieved under the auspices of Limhi. 8. Mosiah 2 leads a political revolution transforming the government from kingship to judgeship. 
The reign of the judges commences when Alma II becomes the first chief judge. Mosiah II and Alma I die. The main element out of chronological order is number three. King Benjamin's speech has been moved to the beginning of the book of Mosiah. Readers infrequently understand that the death of Abinadi and the conversion of Alma I occur some seven decades before Benjamin's speech. And Alma I's splinter group converges with Zerahem, the Zarahemla main body of Nephites just four years after that speech. Faulkner notes that the rearrangement of Mosiah is intentional and the structure conveys a large part of the book's theological and political message, although the reader may miss the point by being confused about the timeline. The reorganization of the content places a focus on government at the center point in the narrative. The first section, chapters 1 through 16, builds a comparison of good King Benjamin with bad King Noah. The second half, chapters 17 through 29, develops a discussion of good government and bad government, again with an example of good kingship, Mosiah II's, with bad kingship cited as a stumbling block, Noah's, with a focus on administrative structure. The book's emphasis on government results from the divisions in Nephi society, Benjamin's speech reacts to fragmentation. Mosiah's constitutional change in leadership structure attempts to solve the problem of disunion. Despite modeling five good kings, Mosiah I, Mosiah II, Benjamin, Zenith, and Limhi, the example of one bad king in his deliberate cultivation of division among the people causes Mosiah II to urge constitutional change. But even after governmental transformation, the political and religious fragmentation continues as the false doctrine of Nehor in Alma I and the attempted coup d'etat by Amalekai in Alma II demonstrate to go slightly beyond the narrative Faulkner restricts himself to dem demonstrate this theme. Benjamin's answer to the question of unity, the answer with which the book of Mosiah begins, is repentance and keeping covenant rather than form of government. The religious conversion is the answer to the faction. Politics isn't. In fact, politics is most often a root cause of division. Although Benjamin's sermon results in unity, the solution must be found anew, in, at least in every generation. Absent the change of heart that comes with religious transformation, cardiac divisions remain. Even after Mosiah II's political reforms, Nehor attempts a religious revolution, and Amalekai attempts a political reversion to kingship. Alma needs to resign the chief judgeship to engage in religious revival in Alma 4 and the resulting reunification of Nephite hearts. Place your faith in God, by whose grace hearts can change, is the theme, and don't devote yourself to utopian political schemes, partisan institutions, or to politicians. The Book of Mosiah's major theme is this, don't make the mistake of believing governments can save souls. Mosiah II is the last of the Nephite kings, and Alma II, the first of the Nephite chief judges. But Alma II's resignation from the judgeship, just four chapters into the book of Alma, points to the limits of politics, if conversion of hearts and minds is the object and design of our existence. Chapter 2, Good Kings and Bad Kings, The Futility of Politics, The Necessity of Atonement. Faulkner's analysis of Mosiah's structure continues with his discussion of politics in chapter 2. Mosiah's governmental reform enacts change from kingship to judgeship, 
This discussion is appropriate for the Book of Mosiah is the Book of Mormon Politeia, as much as 1 Samuel 8 through 12, often included in such description, is Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 to 20, is frequently called the Biblical Politeia. These biblical passages anticipate and enact political transformation from judgeship to kingship. The first part of the Deuteronomic history, Joshua, Judges, and 1 Samuel, or is concerned with leadership of the Israelites by judges, as the rest of that history is about leadership by kings, from 2 Samuel to 2 Kings. Robert Alter and Richard B. Hayes have pioneered readings of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, demonstrating the complexity and ubiquity of illusion in those texts. Alter notes the constant state of illusion present in the Hebrew Bible, a form of textuality resulting from the intellectual process of the writers and their views of history. He refers to, quote, the paramount importance of intra-biblical allusion for ancient Hebrew writers, end of quote. And a foundational element for that intertextuality is the Hebraic belief that historical events repeat over and over with patterns of apostasy, exoduses, and divine deliverance, repeating prototypes, archetypes, and models from the past. Hayes notes the same for the New Testament. Quote, If we want to understand what the New Testament writers were doing theologically, particularly how they interpreted the relation of the gospel to the more ancient story of God's covenant relationship to Israel, we cannot avoid tracing and understanding their appropriation of Israel's scriptures. End of quote. Hebraic literature constantly alludes to other portions of the biblical text, and the reader who doesn't explicitly read for such connections misses a large part of the meaning. Much work needs to be done exploring Book of Mormon intertextuality with the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, and portions of the Nephite scripture itself that precede the passage doing the alluding. What is true of biblical textuality is also the pattern of Nephite scripture, which puts itself in constant typological relationship with the portions of the Hebrew Bible, that the Lehi group brought with them to their promised land, and additional biblical content revealed to the Nephite group. To understand what the Book of Mormon Politeia attempts to teach its readers, one must understand what the biblical Politeia taught its Nephite readers. Jim Falkler and David Gore, in the latter's The Voice of the People, Political Rhetoric in the Book of Mormon, correctly read the posture of Mosiah, which doesn't put the divine stamp of approval on forms of government, in other words, in using contemporary context and updating of the scriptural text used throughout the interpretive history of the Bible called typology with its type-slash-anti-type structure, God is not a Republican or a Democrat, Tory or Laborite, free market capitalist or socialist, and each of these ideologies parties, and parties can and do easily become idols of the cave. These are human institutions and arrangements constructed and peopled by fallible people with spotty records and histories, each with an admixture of good and evil, and those who assert the divine mandate for their preferred political structures, factions, or stances, don't understand the divine discontent with not only the clay pot made by the potter's hands, but the potter is human clay made by the divine hands, referred to in Jeremiah 18, 1-12. This is not a form of political relativism in which all political and economic structures are equal, equally good or equally bad in some way, but like the pigs who are all equal while some are more equal than others, some institutions are more evil than others, 
and the comparison of political and economic system requires a granular explanation, examination of ways systems are better and worse in different aspects than others. God's work requires constant building up and breaking down, planting and pulling, consecrating and desecrating what humans have fashioned, misshapen and mangled. Quote, O house of Israel, can I deal with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the potter is in the, the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning nation, and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and pull down and to destroy, if that nation against whom I am pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil, and the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at that instant I will speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build up and to plant it. If I do evil in my sight, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. End of quote. Jeremiah 18, 6-10 The divine human inter- interaction is one of God executing one plan only to have humans mess it up only after a few generations requiring a reset with one divine groundhog day repetition after another. Genesis has the divine plan beginning with Adam and Eve imposing strict requirements on humans, vegetarianism, comedy between humans and animals. By chapter 6, human society has devolved into violence and sin in just two generations. Noah is a second Adam. Both iterations are gardeners. Both Each receives the, the same command to multiply and fill the earth, Each is given a fresh new earth to populate. But this time, the animals fear humans, for animal flesh joins plants as human food. Genesis 9, 1-7 The violent tendencies humans manifest toward each other, beginning with Cain, now have a different potential outlet. For post-deluge humans can kill animals for food. Antideluvian animals were sacrificed but not eaten. The God of Genesis wants to bless all humanity, but the violence and corruption to which humans are prone in the primeval period causes God to wipe the slate clean and start over again with Noah and his descendants. The tactic soon results in post-Deluge violence and division comparable to Cain's murder of Abel, after which Cain founds the first city with a polity based on coercion and brutality. With the Tower of Babel and the prototypical municipality's project of constructing that tower high enough to permit the storming of heaven, and the overthrowing of God. St. Augustine saw Cain's murder of Abel and Romulus's murder of Remus as paradigmatic for all human societies. Violence and murder are the foundation of the city of man. One common definition of government among political scientists today is that organization that can make plausible claims to a monopoly on the use of violence in a society. An aspect of the narrative in Mosiah calls the reader to see the biblical Noah as a new Adam, but also King Noah as a new Adam, and therefore, as a, excuse me, but also King Noah as a new Noah, and therefore as a new Adam also. Having migrated to a new land under Zenith, King Noah's father, King Noah repeats the biblical Noah's act of planting a vineyard and imbibing in wine to his shame. Genesis 9, 20 to 21. Quote, and Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered in his tent. End of quote. Similarly, King Noah, quote, 
planted a vineyard around about in the land, and he built wine presses and made wine in abundance, and therefore he became a wine bibber and also his people. End of quote. Mosiah 11.15 Noah is a type. King Noah is the anti-type. God's plan C in the sublunary working out of the divine design is to covenant with Abraham and his offspring that all humanity might be blessed. The Genesis story shows God dumbing down expectations of humans to see what formal social arrangements are best adapted to human nature and human weakness for human benefit. This is how the reader ought to view the biblical and Book of Mormon politeia narratives. Both instances of God planting crops and pulling up weeds once humans are exiled to the lone and dreary world of politics and economics. God is not locked into kingship or judgeship, parliamentary or presidential democracy, authoritarianism or anarchy, mercantilism or feudalism. Plan D narrows the focus to a subset of Abraham's seed. The initial plans with Adam and Eve and later with the Noachide laws encompass all of humanity. Then focus fastens on Abraham and his posterity. That plan then narrows to Jacob and his offspring. Moses and the Mosaic Covenant represent another divine attempt to create a pattern among the Israelites so the whole, whole world of humanity might witness the divine power and love. After exile and conquest, the Jews are the remnant of, a, of an earlier chosen people. That is why, when the people ask for a king like all the nations in 1 Samuel 8 through 12, both Samuel and God are disappointed, but God still acquiesces to the popular will. The Israelites aren't satisfied with charismatic judges who are sent by God when circumstances become dire, usually under military threat from Philistines or other neighbors, but want leadership that is dynastic, reliable from generation to generation, rather than relying upon God to raise up a judge-slash-deliverer. With some of these judges, a Messiah, or a Savior, is sent. Judges 6, 14-15, 36-37, 1 Samuel 7, 8, and 9, 16, use the word Messiah, or Savior, regarding Gideon, Samuel, and Saul as saviors in a crisis. Samuel, the last of the judges, resists the voice of the people, rejecting, viewing it as a rejection of him rather than of God. But God urges him to grant the people's desire. Quote, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. End of quote. 1 Samuel 8, 7. God then instructs Samuel to articulate the manner, quote, manner of the king which involves quarry labor, appropriation of property, confiscation of one-tenth of the people's agricultural and pastoral goods, impressing sons and daughters into the king's service, and the rest of the books of Samuel and Kings demonstrate the realization of these consequences, especially under Solomon. And the concentration of political power in the king's household, along with the potential for despotism that results. That is why of King Noah, the book of Mosiah notes, that he taxed one-fifth of all the king people's goods. And the Book of Mormon is alluding to Samuel's, quote, manner, end quote, of a king to show that Noah is twice as rapacious as the kings of Israel and Judah are predicted to be, Mosiah 11.3. This, quote, manner, end quote, of a king can be viewed as legislation. Samuel is warning the people what their institutional arrangements will be once they have a king like all the nations, 
Yet the Israelites insist, quote, but we will have a king over us, end quote, 1 Samuel 8, 19. The Book of Messiah wants to ensure that readers catch the comparison between Samuel, the last Israelite judge who institutes kingship with Mosiah II, the last Nephite king who institutes judgeship, by providing elusive references between the two, as Mosiah II possesses seer stones to translate the Jaredite record, the account assures the reader that these are antique devices for whosoever, quote, whosoever has these things is called a seer after the manner of old times, Mosiah 28.16. Presumably, divination tools that extend deep into the biblical past. The reader is also alerted by being told the relationship between a seer and a prophet. When Limhi asks Ammon if anyone can translate the Jaredite record, Ammon notes Mosiah too has stated, quote, that a seer is greater than a prophet, end quote, Mosiah 8.15. Because a seer can know of things which are past and also of things which are to come, end of quote, Mosiah 8.17. Mosiah too is soon going to embark on structural government, governmental reform, just as Samuel did, when the first king of Israel is about to be revealed to Samuel, the prophet and Saul goes in search of his lost asses, we are similarly told the relationship between a seer and a prophet. Saul's servant urges Saul to ask the local prophet, Samuel, where the asses are for, quote, he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. The Book of Mormon Politeia is in constant elusive dialogue with not just 1 Samuel 8 through 12 and Deuteronomy 17, but the entire Deuteronomistic history, which goes from Joshua through 2 Kings, which also explores the nature and quality of leadership, a dialogue I won't have space to explore in this review. Faulkner notes the relevance of biblical engagements with politics and how that discussion is carried out in the Book of Mormon in relation to the Israelite records and the Nephites brought with them. Quote, the Bible, however, not only is concerned with the fact that a wicked king is likely to oppress the people and to be difficult to overthrow, it also shows a direct correlation between rulers and good people as well as between corrupt rulers and bad people. End of quote. Except Faulkner doesn't refer to 1 Samuel to make this point, but to Isaiah 32, 1-8. As Faulkner notes, the political content of Mosiah depends on, a, on comparison of good kings... Mosiah and Mosiah, Benjamin and Mosiah too in particular, with wicked King Noah. Noah believes he is above the people he rules, making up his own rules and laws for himself and his sycophants, that the power of armies and institutions can keep a polity together. But Noah doesn't realize that politics and power cannot unify the people. Quote, Noah believes that power, his power, can prevent these differences and he trusts that it will, end of quote. But it is Benjamin's approach, not Noah's, that brings the society together. Quote, when it comes to the creation of unity, now as well as in the eternities, politics is futile, unable to bring about the end it desires. End of quote. That doesn't mean people should eschew politics, but realize its limitations. Quote, to say that politics is futile is to say that there is no particular politics of righteousness, Politics is futile for the purpose of making people good, but not for organizing them to live better lives. End of quote. Politics can make good people bad, but it can't make bad people good. 
No politics can, quote, this, quote, beginning of quote, no politics can make us good. We must already be good independent of our politics. So there are Christians in politics, but Christianity does not imply any particular politics, not a monarchy, not judges, not a confusion state, neither American-style democracy or European-style social democracy, end of quote. The Deuteronomistic history has lots of kings to choose from, but it also highlights for comparison good and bad kings. For the northern kingdom, the paradigmatic evil kings are abundant. Jeroboam, who introduced idol worship, and Ahab, both syncretistic, greedy, and murderous, stand out. The southern kingdom of Judah had an archetypal evil king, Manasseh, and two good kings, Josiah and Hezekiah. Just three kings into the Israelite experiment with kingship, the United Kingdom even had one king who was both paradigmatic, good, and evil king. Solomon is the wise and righteous king early in his reign, and the syncretistic king later in his reign, who likely served as the chief model of what kings should not do in Deuteronomy 17's Law of the King. In the transition from judges to kings, God shows the people choosing badly and lays out the consequences, but God acquiesces to the request despite Noah's objections. At least when those Nephites who followed Alma 1 in fleeing from Noah are foolish enough to desire a king like all the nations they have known, quote, the people were desirous that Alma should be their king, end of quote, Mosiah 23, 6. The never past and not to be featured king persuades the people to rescind their desires, citing evil King Noah as an example of the potential bad consequences, referring to his own experience and desire rather than attributing the leadership arrangement to God. For, quote, I say unto you, not thus saith the Lord, it is not expedient that ye should have a king, Mosiah 23.7. Similarly, when Mosiah 2 urges the people to transition from kingship, he doesn't attribute the institutional change to God's command, but to his own prudential judgment. I command you to do these things, that ye have no king, Mosiah 29.30. Alma 1 urges the people to choose wisely and trust no king to be a king over you, or to trust no man to be your teacher, minister, president, or governor, quote, except he be a man of God, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments, end of quote. Mosiah 23, 13-14. Alma 1 permits himself to be consecrated high priest at this point, and selected later as chief judge, that should be Alma 2. But he too well understands that all the all-too-human capacity for abuse of power before the fall, or as Faulkner states the matter, quote, Understanding the futility of politics means recognizing what good politics can do, help us organize ourselves productively and efficiently, and especially what it cannot do, make us good. Page 43. The theological message the reader should take away from the two politeias is that certain foundational events are universal because human nature and the unfolding of the divine plan are general. They repeat time and again. The premises of such a recurrence are that, one, God is in charge of the universe and history, and two, repetitions are built into the system so one can look backward and forward in time to see the divine blueprint unfolding. So the modern reader should see not only Mosiah 2 and Alma 1, looking back to their situation as a repetition of biblical times past, but we should even find in the 21st century that circumstances, 
human fallenness and political happenstance repeat themselves, for we contemporary readers want as much as the ancient Israelites or ancient Nephites to be like all the nations. This split vision of seership looks to the past and the future simultaneously. Mosiah doesn't endorse any particular governmental structure, but the book condemns corrupt and abusive government, no matter the form, and endorses good government promoting the interests of the populace rather than serving the welfare of elites. In portraying a tyrant king, the Book of Mormon is repeating an archetype found commonly, an archetype found commonly in the Old Testament, the ancient Near East, and virtually everywhere and everywhere, even today. King Noah is the archetype of bad government in the Book of Mormon, evidence by explicit corruption and self-dealing while living high in the taxpayer's expense, making Zenith slash Noah slash Limpi line a monarchic, generational, and dynastic burden on the people, while failing, as Faulkner points out, all politics do, to make people better. Noah engaged in the following worst practice of governments. Bullet point. Built opulent buildings to show off wealth and power to the populace. Mosiah 11, 8, and 13. Bullet point. Sent his brown-shirted troops to suppress his own dissenting people when they protested his rule. Mosiah 18.33 and 19.1-2. Bullet point. Surrounded himself with corrupt sycophants and yes-men, even requiring the people to flatter their dear leader in his cabinet full and basket full of priests. Mosiah 11.7. Bullet point. Covenanted riches. Coveted riches. Mosiah 11.14. Bullet point like any narcissist, served his own interests, selfish interests, rather than the public good. Mosiah 29, 23, and 19, 8. Bullet point. Boasted in an illusory or short-lived strength over enemies and divided people rather than bringing them together. Mosiah 11:19. Bullet point. Engaged concubines, harlots, and whores. Mosiah 11, 2, and 14. Bullet point. Threatened to use violence to retain political office when challenged. Mosiah 14, 4-7. Bullet point. Further nurturing his edifice complex, built a tall tower, the putatively tallest tower in the principal city, to surveil his people and his enemies. Mosiah 11:12. Bullet point. Placed a heavy taxation burden on his people to support iniquity without paying any taxes himself a tax burden of 20% of their income, Mosiah 11.3. Bullet point, planted vineyards for wine production and drove his people to drink, Mosiah 11.15. Bullet point, put himself above the law, quote, It is not expedient that we should give, we should have a king, for thus saith the Lord, You shall not esteem one flesh above another, or one man shall not think himself above another, end of quote, Mosiah 23.7 nor above the law when holding a position of power. Bullet point. Like wicked autocrats everywhere, that is all autocrats, appointed his cronies and sycophants to governmental positions by, quote, changing the affairs of the people, end of quote, Mosiah 11.4. Firing the previous priests and appointing new counselors in his own image, Mosiah 11.5, and spreading corruption throughout the body politic from the top down, quote, for behold, he has his friends in iniquity, and he keepeth his guards around him, and he teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him. 
and he trampleth under his feet the commandments of God, and he enacteth laws and sendeth them forth among his people, yea, laws after the manner of his own wickedness. And whosoever doth not obey his laws, he causeth to be, to be destroyed. And whosoever doth rebel against him, he will send his armies against them to war. And if he can, he will destroy them. And thus an unrighteous king doth pervert the ways of all righteousness. End of quote. Mosiah 29, 22-23. Bullet point. Causes the people to suffer, for Mosiah 2 enumerates just a few of the disadvantages, plagues, and divisions that result from having a wicked potentate rule over them. Quote, And he also unfolded unto them all the disadvantages they labored under, by having an unrighteous king to rule over them, yea, all his iniquities and abominations, and all the wars and contentions and bloodshed, and the stealing and the plundering and the committing of whoredoms, and all manner of iniquities which cannot be enumerated, telling them that these things ought not to be, that they were expressly repugnant to the commandments of God. End of quote. Mosiah 29, 35-36 Having had one close call and narrow escape from tyranny and bondage under King Noah, the type of the evil ruler, the Nephites had the prudence when another putative king comes along, just five years into Mosiah 2's reforms went into effect, attempting to overthrow self-governance, the people's voice comes against making Amalekai king, Amalma 2, 7 whose wickedness drove him and his followers to reject the voice of the people and attempt a coup d'etat by force. It is neither coincidental nor accidental that usurpers who would be kings, Amalekai and Amalekiah, long before explicit king men emerge in the narrative, were led by those whose names has their aspirations normalized. The root word MLK means king in Hebrew. Those who supported Amalekai's kingly bid in the election failed and they proceeded to extra-constitutionally concentrate Amalekai king and use force to overturn the will of the people, Alma 2, 7-10, which would be comparable today to supporting a King Noah despite such a king's having been straightforwardly rejected in a re-election campaign. These repetitions over long time spans teach the reader that history repeats itself and the God acts through not only repetitions of wicked rulers, but also through deliverances from such would-be or has-been kings. The lesson, the lesson Mosiah 2 wants the Nephites to learn, and contemporary readers today, is that one evil ruler can negate the work of many good rulers, and structural safeguards such as institutional arrangements cannot, in the absence of a righteous populace, when constitutional, constitutional guardrails are constantly under pressure, ensure against populist or elitist authoritarianism. It is, says Mosiah 2, uncommon for the majority to choose unrighteously, but common that a minority of the popular vote might see, might select unrighteously. Mosiah 26. Quote, And if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. End of quote. Mosiah 29.27. The Israelites unwisely reject God for being their God, from being their king, in order to be like all the nations. The Xenophites imprudently appointed Noah to succeed Xenophus king, and he did cause his people to commit sin, and do that which was abominable in the sight of the Lord. Yea, and they did commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness, because they did not learn the lesson from the from past repetitions of tyranny and oppression. 
Exegesis of such recurrences in Scripture is theological if we believe that God's mighty acts of salvation repeat themselves over time. For we will want to know how humans have dealt with God, and God has dealt with humans in the past. Quote, For he that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost, as well in those times as in times of old, and as well as in times of old as in times to come. Wherefore, the course of the Lord is one eternal round. End of quote. 1 Nephi 10.19 And that lessons learned by saints of former days are relevant to saints of latter days because we humans, all too human as we are, are prone to repeat mistakes from past lessons unlearned, requiring divine intervention along patterns we witnessed in bygone times. King Noah's greed, arrogance, corruption, lawlessness, narcissism, and selfishness are not how a proper king should act, and therefore neither kingly nor unprecedented sick. In the history of national leadership, Cyrus is not the type repeated over time, and historical circumstances nor the antitype to be learned from today. King Noah is. Chapter 3. Salvation is creation from nothing. Mosiah 4, 1-12. Faulkner spends two chapters examining portions of Benjamin's speech, parts that can puzzle readers. Faulkner performs the exegetical work that theology often does to clarify a sacred text. After giving his sermon and seeing the congregation recognize their own carnal and fallen state while pleading for the grace of God, Benjamin further urges them that, quote, If the knowledge of the goodness of God at this time has awakened you to a sense of your nothingness and your worthless and fallen state, end of quote, Mosiah 4.5, the audience should embrace the right view of their place in the cosmos. This troubles some readers who have an exalted view of humanity and its place as divinities in embryo, to think of humanity as, quote, nothing, end of quote. Faulkner makes the case that, quote, end quote, nothing, here means not worthless or non-existence, as in creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, end of quote, but as, quote, unquote, no thing, meaning indeterminate or unformed matter. The restoration tradition doesn't adhere to a notion of creation out of nothing, but God's creative act is to take chaotic, formless matter and organize it, much like a potter would at the wheel. Commonly in his speech, Benjamin uses the simile that humans are like the dust of the earth, out of which God shaped the created order we now live in. But even dust obeys the divine command. Quote, Implicitly, Benjamin moves from the formlessness of dust prior to our creation to the form we receive as sons and daughters of God and uh, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve in relationship with God. End of quote, page 50. Faulkner's reading connects Benjamin's dust and creation to the creation account in Genesis because Adam and Eve were also created out of the dust of the earth. We too are formless until we are shaped and created, spun out of the dirt into a workable vessel. The listeners see themselves as, quote, even less than the dust of the earth, end of quote, Mosiah 4.2. Because they are responding directly to Benjamin's words that, quote, You cannot say that you are even as much as the dust of the earth, yet you were created out of the dust of the earth, but behold, it belongs to him who created you. End of quote. Mosiah 2.25 The audience and the readers don't belong to themselves, but to God who created them out of the dust. Quote, Benjamin is thinking analogously about human beings having been created from formlessness by the Father. 
we have lowered ourselves to formlessness again through sin. End of quote. Page 56. The goal of Benjamin's sermon is to have the audience and the reader to be reformed and reshaped by becoming new creatures. Chapter 4. Are we not all beggars? Mosiah 4, 12-28. In chapter 4, Faulkner notes the effects of Benjamin's sermon on its audience, the effects it might have on the reader of Mosiah. Faulkner lists 12 such effects, most of them tied to obligations of service. One of the consequences is that the that Zarahemla audience should result in people experiencing this rebirth. These actions, quote, these actions are among the ways that those whose sins have been remitted will imitate their Redeemer in service, end of quote, page 62. These outcomes Benjamin articulates not as commandments, but as the products of having sins remitted. The first cluster of results have to do with spiritual depth. We will rejoice, be filled with God's love, retain a remission of sins, and grow in knowledge of God and his works. All of these Faulkner articulates as not just individual virtues, but ones affecting the community. Pages 63 to 66. The next cluster of follow-on results impact family and community, teaching children and and dealing justly with neighbors. Another cluster focuses on succoring those who need our help. Faulkner singles out the three classes of people affected by these obligations that we naturally fulfill after our hearts are changed. The rich, the poor, and the beggar. The only passage... The word beggar is used in the Book of Mormon. Since Benjamin's speech is a call to a changed heart that produces service, the implication is that we have a duty to serve the beggar. Quote, Benjamin is not arguing for social change. He neither says nor implies that, that having a society with both rich and poor is a problem, nor does he say that it isn't. The existence of all three social classes that he mentions creates an obligation of economic redistribution for each of the top two classes, but Benjamin says nothing about what kind of political or economic system, if any, his thinking leads to, leads to, end of quote, page 72. Just as particular political systems are for humans to work out in the mangle and muddle of principle and practice, so too are the economic systems humans attempt to realize a better society and not divinely directed, enacted, or endorsed. Chapter 5. God himself shall come down. One can see in the Maxwell Institute promotional material published by the Church News about the series, the sensitivity to the notion that we in the Restoration tradition don't do theology, but we do do doctrine. Quote, The term can scare people off, but all we mean by theology is a more considered and reflective meditation on the scriptures and their implications. End of quote said Terrell Givens, a senior research fellow at the Maxwell Institute and author of Second Nephi, a Brief Theological Introduction. Givens continues, quote, Theology just means God talk, God discourse, quote, end of quote, he said. So, quote, So theology is a way of trying to be more introspective and contemplative about our faith in rigorous ways. Rigor is one of the hallmarks of this series, It's not about erudition or sophistication or academic training or language. It's just about thinking harder about gospel things. End of quote. Faulkner grapples in the fifth chapter with the question of how to understand Abinadi's theology, how Jesus can be considered both the Father and the Son, 
while concurrently members of the Church of Christ are doctrinally committed to the notion that members of the Godhead are distinct and separate personages. One can discern from the fact that Faulkner feels the need to define the word Trinitarian, the general audience he aims to reach, page 43. Faulkner parses the context and syntax of this passage, Mosiah 15, 1-5, to clarify the meaning The theological problem of Christology, the problem Faulkner addresses, how can Christ be both divine and human, has a long tradition in the Christian, has a long tradition in the Christian tradition, page 90. The Nephites at various times also grappled with the problem, page 89. Abinadi's is the first reference to the condescension of Christ in the chronological structure of the Nephite record. It is a literal deus es machina, Christ comes among men and makes him, and takes humanity upon himself, yet remains divine. An angel visits Benjamin and explains that Christ is all of three things, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, and the Creator. The various roles and aspects don't include the possibilities of the others. Yet even though this doctrine was taught to the Nephites throughout the time covered by the Book of Mormon, including among the Jaredites, Quote, that it needed to be taught over and over again, suggests that the people found it difficult to believe, end of quote, page 99. Just as we do also, after a close examination of the relevant passages that the reader should, would be better served to read directly from Faulkner than to have me summarize, quote, the upshot is that the aspects of these verses can be read in Trinitarian terms, as some have suggested, but they need not be, end of quote, page 105. For Faulkner, Mosiah 15 is not a discourse about the being or ontology of God, nor a discussion about their relationship to each other. It is merely Abinadi's explanation of what it means for God to come to earth, tabernacled in flesh and blood, and become mortal. Page 109. This brief theological discussion of Mosiah, rightly, I think, as Faulkner asserts the most complex book in the Book of Mormon, ends with a brief conclusion reminding the reader that the Book of Mosiah is, quote, a fragmentary book about a fragment people obsessed with the question of unity, end of quote, page 112. That can only be achieved through the grace of the atonement, clothed in the garments of service. The book of Mosiah tries hard, as Benjamin and Mosiah too, to unify the reader's hearts and minds at the opening of the book of Mosiah and to the closing chapter. Even in the middle, another of the fragmented Nephite groups is told by Alma 1, how to move forward in faith and service, quote, And he commanded them that there should be no contention one with another, but they should look forward with an eye of faith, having one faith and one baptism, having their hearts knit together in unity and in love one towards another. End of quote. Mosiah 18.21 The gospel and the atonement might make a new creation of us, and out of the many, one. Alan Goff is a legal proofreader and editor who taught in various universities, including 21 years at DeVry University in Phoenix. He publishes about literary and historical aspects of scripture in the Restoration tradition, along with the historiography of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and historical theory. He received a baccalaureate degree with a double major in English and political science from Brigham Young University, along with a master's degrees in both these disciplines from BYU. He received his doctorate, doctorate in Humanities from the University of Albany, a SUNY school. This has been a recording of 
working out salvation history in the Book of Mormon Politeia with Fear and Trembling, a review of James E. Faulkner's Mosiah, A Brief Theological Introduction by Alan Goff, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scripture in 2020 by Alan Goff. This audio recording is copyrighted under Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.